NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. If approved, applications are typically funded the next business day or sooner. Loans offered by NetCredit or lending partner banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com slash partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. Tonight on The Readout. We're going to deliver. We're going to get the best people in the world. You know, we have the greatest business people in the world. We don't use them. We're going to use our smartest and our best. We're not using political hacks anymore. That's the people that do these deals. They're political hacks. We want experts, our finest people. We don't want people that are B-level, C-level, D-level. We have to get our absolute best. Trump hired all the best people. Now, many of those same people, his former attorney general, defense secretary, national security advisor, and others say he endangered national security. Also tonight, new reporting seems to answer the question as to why it took so long for the Justice Department to begin an investigation into Trump's plot to overturn the 2020 election. Plus, Republicans' loyalty pledge. They're basically asking all the presidential candidates to support Trump if he's nominated again and probably pardon him, too. I'm Jason Johnson, in for Joy Reid, and we begin tonight with Justice Delayed. Today, of course, is Juneteenth, marking the day in 1865 when enslaved black people in Galveston, Texas, learned they were free two months after the end of the Civil War and more than two years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Took 150 years, constant work from local activists and the CBC, for people to recognize that Juneteenth needed to happen and that it should be a federal holiday. This is typical for a country that tends to take too much time to address its problems. We'll have more on that coming up. But speaking of justice delayed, it is ironic but fitting that on this day, according to a damning new report from the Washington Post, we're learning that in the face of a once-in-a-lifetime danger to our democracy posed by Donald Trump, the Attorney General and the Director of the FBI also delayed allowing Trump's role in instigating the January 6th attack to go unscrutinized for more than a year. According to the Post, quote, a wariness about appearing partisan, institutional caution, and clashes over how much evidence was sufficient to investigate the actions of Trump and those around him all contributed to the slow place. Attorney General Merrick Garland and the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco charted a cautious course aimed at restoring public trust, you know, Republicans, in the department, while some prosecutors below them chafed, feeling top officials were shying away from looking at evidence of potential crimes by Trump and those close to him. But the report notes that the delay in looking directly at Trump started in the period shortly after the attack on the Capitol. Quote, Acting U.S. Attorney Michael Sherwin, senior department officials Paul Abate, the top deputy to the FBI, Director Chris Wray, quashed a plan by prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office to directly investigate Trump associates for any links to the terrorist attack, deeming it premature, according to five people familiar with the decision. Instead, they insisted on a methodical approach, focusing first on rioters and going up the ladder. The strategy was embraced by Garland, Monaco, and Wray. According to the Post, the leaders at both agencies held on to that ladder-up approach to avoiding Trump, even as evidence emerged that Trump and his allies had schemed to overturn the election weeks before their henchmen laid siege to the Capitol. 
That approach can be traced to Garland's desire to turn the page from missteps, bruising attacks and allegations of partisanship and investigations into Russian interference and in the 2016 election and Hillary Clinton's emails. But the report added, inside justice, however, some have complained that the attorney general's determination to steer clear of any claims of political motive has chilled efforts to investigate the former president. Quote, you couldn't use the T word, said one former justice official briefed on prosecutors' discussions. The Post also sheds new light on the ways the House January 6th committee may have forced DOJ's hand by investigating the scheme to install fake electors to deliver the election for Trump. News reports that the committee was looking into the matter, as well as exhaustive reporting by our colleague Rachel Maddow, inspired new urgency at Maine Justice. One person directly familiar with the DOJ's interest in the case told the Post it felt as though the department was reacting to the committee's work, as well as heightened media coverage and commentary. Only after they were embarrassed did they start looking, the person said. Joining me now to discuss is Paul Butler, former federal prosecutor, MSNBC legal analyst and professor at Georgetown School of Law, and Ellie Mistel, the Lewis Black of politics and justice, correspondent for The Nation and author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution, available now in paperback. Paul Butler, I'm going to start with you. You were at justice. Tell me, after you read this article what the impact on an investigation could be when the head of the Department of Justice is basically saying, I want you to do this with two hands, one toe, and an ear tied behind your back. Will you slow walk an investigation of the former president for violations of national security that led to the worst attack on the U.S. Capitol since 1812? When you slow walk that investigation, you slow walk the rule of law. You slow walk justice. The U.S. Attorney's Office had teams investigating deaths that happened on January 6th and teams investigating the pipe bomb that had been planted near the Capitol and teams investigating groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. But DOJ officials at the very top made them slow walk the investigation of Trump even his connections to people like Roger Stone, even though Roger Stone was tight with the Oath Keepers, he was tight with Donald Trump. So the poll says that prosecutors weren't even allowed to follow the money on how the insurrection was financed because of political concerns about who might be implicated. So, uh, Jason, we'll never know all of the costs of this delay in terms of losing leads, emails and text messages get deleted after 15 months, which is how long it took for the FBI to get seriously involved in focusing on Donald Trump. After 15 months, witness memories fade. But one cost is clear right now. If DOA officials hadn't held Trump to this different standard, he would have been indicted months ago, not just for Mar-a-Lago, but also for January 6th. So ironically, and trying to rise above politics, Merrick Garland has enhanced the politics because now there's a federal prosecution of a presidential candidate smack in the middle of a presidential campaign. Ellie, I just want your immediate reaction <laughs> to this article. Just the, the core idea that Merrick Garland was basically, as Paul Butler saying, 
telling everybody to slow walk this. What was your first reaction having observed this this entire process over the last two years? My very first reaction was to quote the late, great Denny Green. They are who we thought they were. <laughs> you want to crown them, crown them, but they are who we thought they were. And what we thought they were, were, were operating a two-tier system of justice, where, as they put in the report, they were going to start at the bottom, at the low-level people who couldn't defend themselves. Like too many prosecutors are all about this using the 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 office, their their incredible resources to put the screws to low level people who can't defend themselves without having the courage to go after the top level people that in the January 6th case order these MAGA barbecued sauced idiots um, to go attack the Capitol. They didn't want any they didn't want any bit of that. And I know this is difficult for Democrats to hear because we like institutions. We want to believe that good people are trying their best. But putting your faith into Garland, he's a mirage. You're drinking sand when you support this guy, because as we've seen in this report and not just that for his entire first two years in office, first year in office, let's say what we've saw is a person who was unwilling to do the work. Everybody knows that if you're a ref and you swallow the whistle and you don't call a foul, you're not being neutral. You're not being no. fair. You're helping the team that fouls. All right. I'm an old school Nick fan. If you don't call, blow the whistle, you're helping Anthony Mason and Charles o and Bill <laughs> Lambier rough up everybody. Right. If you blow the whistle fairly, that's being that's being a neutral arbiter. And Merrick Garland never was willing to do that. You know, Ellie, and, and here's I want to follow this up and I want to take this to Charles. I think this is really key. It's like part of what was also discussed. And we see in a report is that interviews were delayed for months. Um, and some of that, some of that, Paul, was because there was difficulty in staffing, right? You had a new administration in, there were holds up with appointments and everything else like that. Some of the delay is because Republican resistance to fill in the Department of Justice. The problem that I see with that as an excuse for the delays is when you see that the Republicans are specifically trying to stop you from staffing yourself to investigate, that should make you more aggressive, right? Not less aggressive? Or, or Paul, am I missing something? I, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, you have it exactly right, Jason. And at this time, people in the military and Congress and the judiciary were pleading for an investigation. There were those three former generals who wrote in the Washington Post that DOJ needed to act urgently because if no leader was held accountable for January 6th, there would be another insurrection. The House panel, the chief investigator for the House panel, privately reach out to DOJ to alert them about what they were finding about how Trump had tried to pressure DOJ and Michael uh, Pence to overturn the election. That fell on deaf ears. Then that federal judge, David Carter, said that Donald Trump and John Eastman had attempted to overthrow the government, that it was obviously illegal, and that DOJ, DOJ needed to step up its responsibilities. Jason, none of that worked. It took almost two years. You know, Ellie, I want to play you some sound uh, by a pair of incredible analysts and get your thoughts on the other side. We have so much information here about what appears to be conspiracy. We have 
people sending text messages back and forth saying, hey, want to take over the government? Sounds cool. Let's do it. Legally, are there ways that we could be moving faster? What I see is Congress, which is an oversight, which has an oversight function, doing with all deliberate speed, as quickly as they can, putting together a case. And I see the FBI doing nothing to go get these people. And that is my question. And that is my problem. And I think it all comes back to Joe Biden's decision to appoint Merrick Garland, a slow moving institutionalist to the to the Department of Justice. Now, Ellie, the guy on the right, his great hair, uh, made a point two years ago that Mayor Garland probably wasn't the best, most aggressive person to do this. But also, I want you to speak to this idea that the report also implies that the DOJ really only started moving because they were getting embarrassed by the January 6th committee meetings last year. It was the public. It was Congress doing the oversight that you were talking about that made them say, oh, my gosh, Jesus is coming. I guess we should get busy. Which is obvious. I mean, we said it in real time. Cassidy Hutchinson is the hero of the story. It's Cassidy Hutchinson that put the fear of God into the DOJ, into Merrick Garland, into Lisa Monaco and made them act. But there's another kind of, I think, more hidden bad guy here who, who who's getting awake a little bit light. And that is, and if you look at that clip that we just played, what did I say? Where's the FBI? I, Jason, I cannot explain how FBI director Chris Ray still has a job. Chris Ray botched the Brett Kavanaugh investigation, botched the Larry Nasser investigation. Let all of these people on January 6th just walk out scot-free. There were immeasurable resources that had to be spent recapturing the people that Chris Ray let walk free on January 6th. And now we see in this report that once again, in that interim from January 7th until Merrick Garland takes over in March 2021, Who's basically in charge? It's Chris Ray, and he does nothing, right? I don't know what he has to do to lose a job. I mean, like, does he have to slap Chris Rock? Like, what does it actually take for Chris Ray to lose a job behind his stuff? Because he is not he has not been a good FBI director based on any objective metric. That is the most effective reference to emancipation that I have heard on Juneteenth. Thank you very much, Ellie Mistel and Paul Butler. Thank you so much for starting off the show, The Readout Tonight. Three of Trump's former national security appointees tell him how they really feel about his classified documents hoarding and his bumbling attempts to explain it all the way. The Readout continues after this break. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. 
Remember how Donald Trump boasted that as president, he would hire only the best people. Well, what does it say that some of those very same people are lining up to condemn their former boss for his mishandling of classified documents, as well as his really, really bad defense of it? It's just irresponsible action that places uh, our service members at risk, places our nation's security at risk. It was very disturbing. We could see in the course of meetings with him, intelligence briefings, decision meetings, that sometimes he liked to retain things. And uh, it became the practice just to make sure that we got them back in as many cases as we could. Uh, Obviously, we failed in many cases. The legal theory by which he gets to take battle plans and, and sensitive national security information as his personal papers is absurd. It's just as wacky as the legal doctrine they came up with for, you know, having the vice president unilaterally determine who won the election. Let's not forget that while in office, those Trump officials were happily complicit in letting Trump destroy America and undermine democracy. So we have to look at what they say now with a grain of salt. But it's it's hard to write them off as Democrats or deep staters or rhinos, even though the MAGA terrorist movement is framing them as just that. And with that taken into consideration, it doesn't diminish their key points especially Bill Barr, on the absurdity and wackiness, as he puts it, of the alleged legal doctrine on which Trump is basing his defense. According to Trump, a president has the absolute right to take whatever documents he wants. As the New Yorker's Amy Davidson Sorkin writes, what it comes down to is the former president claims that if he just calls a document personal, whether it plausibly is or not, No one can even question him about it. Such extreme legal theories, she says, come from the same type of people who convinced Trump in 2020 that their big idea was that Vice President Pence could use his position presiding over a joint session of Congress to toss out the electoral votes of several states and that to do so would be constitutional. Of course, it wouldn't have been constitutional. And all we remember is how this turned into a terrorist attack. Joining me now to discuss is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney, MSNBC legal analyst and professor at the University of Alabama Law School. Now, Joyce, I'll start with this. Obviously, Trump's legal justifications are a bunch of nonsense. But what does it say for further prosecution and further investigation now that he's been indicted that many of the men and women who worked with him are now turning around and saying, yeah, man, this guy was nuts. He was he was wild. And this this had nothing to do with the Constitution. Does that have an impact? Do these interviews become sort of evidence brought against him in further prosecution? So I think that these comments that we're hearing speak more to the, the court of public opinion than to the case that prosecutors are building. And it's difficult. And Jason, you point this out to listen to these comments And to wish that Bill Barr had had a modicum of that, you know, common sense wisdom that he now seems to have suddenly come into possession of when he resigned from the Justice Department and wrote a glowing letter about the accomplishments of the Trump administration and his pride in serving under President Trump. I think none of these folks are Johnny come lately to the awareness that the former president's long term handling of classified information was dangerous, to say the least. They may have had information about facts that could have been helpful and relevant at some point. But now they're just preaching to the choir. Joyce, this is a thing that that sort of also gets me about this. This core theory, this, this idea that, well, because I'm the president, 
I can take whatever I want. I mean, it's like you see, like Nick Cage from National Treasure. If 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 the president decided that the Emancipation Proclamation, if the president decided that the Constitution or or any other important document was just theirs, that they could just walk out with it, makes no sense. What could have been on the mind of people who were telling him these things? Were, were they just telling Trump lies and figuring this will make him feel better? And then 20 minutes later, he's like, OK, so how do we do it? Or were these people true believers in absolute nonsense? So I'm going to engage in a little bit of speculation here. You know, we know that Trump is fixated on this notion that Bill Clinton had tapes in his sock drawer. Well, those tapes were something akin to a personal diary, and Clinton designated those as personal records, kept them at the end of his term in office. And so Trump is thinking, well, gee, I I should have just designated everything as personal records. Maybe I magically did in my head, so I get to keep everything And the fallacy that's built into that approach, if that's going to form his defense, is that you cannot designate top secret materials that were written by other people, by folks in the intelligence community, as personal records. They simply don't have that character. Joyce, I want to play you some sound from uh, Trump's latest interview where he tries to explain why he didn't just give the documents over to begin with when the DOJ was asking and our archives were asking. Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but according to the indictment, you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things. Now, look, Joyce. I'm not going to question everything Trump says, but I figure if you thought there was something important in your boxes, you would find a better way to handle them than sticking them in a really tacky bathroom in Mar-a-Lago with curtains that you clearly got from Marshalls. Look, does it make any sense for him to be claiming that he needed to go through these boxes and that was the only reason for the delay? And is that the kind of thing that is going to be a part of his legal defense or is that just something he wants to say to the Fox News audience? Well, I think that's a confession. That's what a prosecutor would call that, a confession to retention of classified materials and an effort to uh, prevent their return to DOJ. So as a prosecutor, I'd be delighted to have that tape. I would probably play it to a jury at trial and use it as evidence to convict the former president. Much of the evidence against him are words that come out of his own mouth. So when we talk about the sort of amount of classified documents, one of the complications is that you almost have to provide security clearance to Trump's lawyers in order for them to look at some of the evidence. But the judge has ruled that Trump can only see the evidence when he is with his lawyers because he's not trustworthy enough. There's a possibility that he could take discovery materials home with him. How rare is that for a judge to essentially say, I don't even trust you with your own evidence, so you need to leave it here behind a closed locker like you're, you're going to Target and you can't get to the toothpaste? So Trump has certainly given um, judges reasons to doubt his ability to respect the boundaries that are typically imposed on discovery in a criminal case. Here it's a little bit bifurcated. This order that we saw today is a pretty standard order. And it relates to Rule 16 discovery. That's the non-classified discovery. There will be an entirely different set 
of rules that will apply to classified discovery. And as you point out, Jason, the lawyers will have to get a security clearance before that discovery can be provided. And the former president will only be able to look at it in the presence of his lawyers. In essence, they'll be held accountable for his proper handling of it. You know, Joyce, we started the show today uh, sort of talking about the sort of blockbuster report that there were sort of delays in the Department of Justice, that this could all take a while. If we're if we're making a time estimate for this current investigation, you know, Trump is going to try and delay as much as he can. You know, he's going to do as many different interviews as he can. What do you think might be the timeline that we're looking at for this investigation? We've talking 18 months. We talk in two or three years. When do you think we might actually see a trial begin and a conclusion, given the depth and breadth and importance of this case? Well, there are a lot of variables at play here. And the key one is how the judge will handle any motions that are brought. We know that for classified information, the law requires um, that the 11th Circuit treat any appeals that are taken from the judge's order on an expedited basis. And they showed us when they considered the Mar-a-Lago matter that they know how to expedite a case when they need to do that. So look, this is not a complicated case um, as prosecutors view cases. It's complicated because of who the defendant is. But if you were just looking at this, you know, this isn't a case that goes to trial in 70 days. There are complicated issues. Certainly the classification matters will slow it down. Getting clearances, figuring out how to handle the information, letting the judge rule pre-trial, sorting out anything that needs to be appealed. That is going to necessarily extend the timeline, but there's no reason that this case couldn't be tried before the election. I think that's what we are all looking at right now and wondering about. That's why the reporting in the Post, I think, is concerning, given that there is really just a little bit more than a year. Can we get there? before we're running again. Joyce Vance, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout. Really appreciate it. Coming up, the RNC wants all Republican presidential candidates to pledge to support the eventual nominee no matter what. But some of them are saying, but what if it's Trump? That's next. Jason Johnson on The Readout. At KPMG, our people make the difference. It's not just something we say, it's what we do. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights, innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG, make the difference. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. For the past seven years, the Republican National Committee has been a subsidiary of Trump Incorporated. From dismissing the January 6th insurrection and events that led to it as legitimate political discourse, to paying for Trump's legal defense, it should come in no surprise to anyone that the RNC is demanding a pledge of loyalty to the party's nominee, a race that polls show Trump is basically leading. But not all of their candidates are treating that pledge with the seriousness the RNC is demanding. Over the weekend, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie told CNN he would treat the pledge the same way Donald Trump did in 2016, 
Trump signed a similar pledge and then walked back on that commitment. I think the pledge uh, is is just a useless idea, Jake. And by the way, um, in all my life, um, we never had to have Republican primary candidates take a pledge. You know, we were Republicans. And the idea is you'd support the Republican whether you won or whether you lost. And you didn't have to ask somebody to sign something. It's only in the era of Donald Trump um, that you need somebody to sign something on a pledge. Christie has repeatedly said that he would not support Trump if he's a nominee. He did say he would sign the pledge in order to participate in the debates, which is one of the RNC's requirements. Christie's campaign has focused on stating the obvious to Republican voters, which is that Donald Trump is a three-time loser trying to launch a tired rerun of his first campaign. And some new polling suggests that Christie's condemnation of Trump might be resonating with a few voters. To discuss, joining me now is Charlie Sykes, editor at large of The Bulwark and an MSNBC contributor. Charlie, I am looking forward to this conversation immensely. (laughs) All right, look, Chris Christie does not impress me, right? Chris Christie impresses me uh, uh, about as much as any other politician that has sold their soul to Donald Trump and then suddenly magically found, you know, some vibranium lace backbone uh, because they have ambitions to run in 2024. But... He does appear to be getting some momentum by eking out the space as the guy who will actually take it to Trump. Right off the top, how far do you think that can take him? I mean, it's not going to be the nomination, but how far do you think it's going to take him being that guy saying Trump is is a paper tiger? I don't know. And he doesn't know either. Um, You're right. He's not going to get the nomination, but he he can still be a very consequential candidate because uh, Donald Trump is the apex predator of the Republican Party. And if he can draw some blood, if he can get that apex predator to stumble, uh, maybe somebody else will come out of the weeds as as well, because Chris Christie is, quite frankly, doing something no other candidate is doing. He is taking the fight to Donald Trump. He is giving as good as he's gotten so far. Um, By the way, on this issue, with a pledge. I, I thought it was interesting that Asa Hutchinson, the former governor of Arkansas, asked the RNC, could we at least clarify that I, I'm not uh, pledging to support someone who's a convicted felon, somebody who was convicted of, say, the Espionage Act? And the RNC uh, rather extraordinarily said, uh, no, um, a pledge is a pledge. Um, we're okay with a convicted felon. We're okay with someone who was convicted of the Espionage Act. So that gives you an idea of how deep uh, in uh, Donald Trump's uh, back pocket, the RNC is and how far they're willing to take this pledge. Look, none of these people are necessarily soft. They've all run for office. They've all been elected. All these Republicans who have now to have run for office. If they collectively come together, I don't know, like a group of orcas or something. But if they all came together and said, we're we're going to attack Donald Trump, um, you might get him to do more than bleed. You might get him to self-implode. You might get him to right. make mistakes that, again, may not prevent him from getting the nomination, but would possibly hobble him from being a successful candidate. Do you think that's something that a Nikki Haley uh, or a Tim Scott or, or anyone else might think of doing collectively? Jason, let me introduce you to the modern Republican Party. Uh, no, they're not going to do that. Uh, yeah. But this is the key question, because um, the Republicans have a collective action problem, which is that right. no one wants to go first. They all know who Donald Trump is. They all know um, all of the baggage and they know what will probably happen in 2024. But nobody wants to be the first one if they collectively right 
all said, you know what, this man is completely unfit for office. He is he's deluded. He's deranged. And we cannot nominate somebody in Milwaukee next year who might be wearing an ankle bracelet. That might make a difference. But as we saw back in 2016, they're not willing to do that. Everybody is looking for somebody else to take the bullet and they're looking and nobody wants to, to, to lead. So. This is why what Chris Christie is doing is at least interesting because he's stepping out. Does that create more of an opening for the other candidates to be more critical? We don't know yet. This is third cycle in a row that you've had a fairly diverse uh, field of Republican candidates. I mean, I don't think we're ever going to see an era again where uh, candidates running for office uh, for either major party are all white. Um, But what's been interesting is Despite having Tim Scott, despite having Nikki Haley, Republicans still don't poll particularly well with black, brown, Latino people, basically non-white folks in America. I want to play some audio from Nikki Haley and get your thoughts on the other side as to whether or not this kind of messaging is part of the problem or if the GOP is just wedded to this ideology. The one thing that bothers me the most is this national self-loathing that has taken over our country. The idea that they say America's bad or that it's rotten or that it's racist. You elected me the first female minority governor in history. America's not racist. We're blessed. You were the governor of a state where a man went and massacred nine people after praying with them, and you didn't want to take down the flag that he was inspired by. I don't really think you have much to say. Charlie, when you hear these sorts of things from Nikki Haley, obviously this goes over very well with the CRT crowd and, and conservative white people and racists and the Proud Boy types. But is this going to get you know, Latino voters in the suburbs of Austin? Is this going to get working class African-Americans living outside of Cleveland? Is this kind of messaging going to go anywhere or is it really just for the ears of the white primary voters that Republicans pretty much tend to have a lock on in the general election anyway? Well, Democrats do have a small problem with uh, working class voters, including uh, Latino and and, and African-American. But this kind of message, though, um, I think is going to drown that out because, uh, you know, what what you have from Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley and even Tim Scott is is the necessity of checking the box that that there is no racism, that we solved that problem, that we had the Civil War and everything is fine. And and what's interesting and ironic on Juneteenth Day is this is a day where uh, America remembers this part of history and celebrates it. At the very same time, the Republican Party seems very deeply invested in not remembering that history, not going back, taking it out of the schools or downplaying it. I mean, I was watching uh, Charlie Kirk, uh, who's a big uh, Trumpist, on social media all day, just melting down how everybody should be at work. Uh, This is a CRT-inspired holiday. Unfortunately, that has put them into a box. There was once an effort by Republicans to be more diverse, to reach out. And Nikki Haley was one of the leaders of all of that. But now there is this gravitational pull that you have to check the boxes. You have to you know, talk about being woke and CRT being anything that makes you uncomfortable about race. So I don't see how they get out of that box. Charles, thanks. Thanks so much for breaking down the current state of the GOP. Thank you. Still ahead. The bitter struggle behind the push to make Juneteenth a national holiday. We'll be right back. This is Jason Johnson on The Readout.
Today, we are celebrating Juneteenth. I mean, I'm still working, but I'm celebrating Juneteenth. It was on this day in the year 1865 when Union Army Major General Gordon Granger rode into Galveston, Texas, and issued General Order Number 3, delivering the news to the last enslaved black Americans that they were truly free. Of course, that news arrived two years, five months, and 18 days after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. The holiday has been celebrated by black Americans for decades now, but was only officially made a federal holiday two years ago, the first since Martin Luther King Jr. Day. It is a celebration of freedom, but also this year a stark reminder about the hostility black Americans still face more than a century and a half later, especially as the country sees a rise in white supremacist hate groups, as well as new laws in Florida and other states that restrict the teaching of black history and racism or banned books that are written by black authors. Joining me now to discuss is one of the leading voices who fought for years to make Juneteenth a federal holiday, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas. Congresswoman, it's great to speak to you this evening. Um, I, I, I always ask this question up front. Good to be with what you. What did you do today? Uh, thank you so much. <laughs> what did you do today to celebrate Juneteenth? Well, the real question is, and it's so good to be with you, Thank you for your great leadership and hello to joy. Happy Juneteenth, everyone. What did I do the 16th, 17th and 18th here in Texas? And that is to reflect and to honor Juneteenth. Specifically today, I started out in Galveston, Texas, to be able to be with those who are, in fact, reminiscing and remembering both the pain of slavery and, yes, uh, the joy, if you will, of General Granger coming to issue order number three, it should be very clear, two and a half long years that those who gathered at that spot in the brutality of slavery had to wait because Texas would not adhere to the order of President Lincoln. And so he said, I don't know what's going on down there, but General Granger, you need to go. And guess what? He brought with him Union soldiers who were black. It was the bloodiest war, but people were willing to engage in this violent war to end the violence of slavery. And so from there, of course, I'm back into Houston, uh, celebrating at the Antioch Baptist Church, church founded by Jack Yates. His great granddaughter was there. He was a freed slave who came to Texas and was re-enslaved because his family had been sold to Texas. And so this is a great Texas story. But the real point of it is I want everyone to know this is America's holiday and America's holiday is not just for black people. It is about freedom and it is about democracy. And the very fact that we have a holiday should be, in fact, the basis upon which we ignore the banning of books about our history, ignore orders of eliminating diversity, culture, and equity. This is an opening for America to talk about its history, to reflect upon what transpired, and also to reflect upon a commission that would study slavery and talk about repair. So this day, I am now at a place that one would not expect, a synagogue, where we're again honoring Juneteenth. It's been a day of commemoration. Acres Homes, a community founded uh, by the name Acres Home, people working in the fields, but yet a beautiful rising community today. I want this to be the holiday for the entire nation about freedom liberation, and the ending of slavery. Uh, Congresswoman, I, I want you to respond to a sort of cynical Internet response, right? It's not me, it's cynical. There are, there are people, and sometimes loud voice in the African-American community, who say, hey, 
We got Juneteenth because President Biden went to Tulsa and didn't want to give reparations. This is this is this is crumbs. This is not a real way of addressing uh, longstanding systematic ills. You know, you have black people work for free for 400 years and you give them one extra day off. How do you respond to those kinds of criticisms that often come from within our own community about the value or significance of Juneteenth? I understand the pain and the conflictedness. Uh, because this was a painful time, uh, and it was not a short time. It was centuries of bondage. But I think the way I explain this is that the task, the job, the mission, the revolution is not yet over. It is not over in Houston, where we look to equity, equality, and inclusiveness. It's not over in Texas, not over in states around the nation. And for anyone to think so, they are certainly sorely mistaken. This holiday should have come about. It's the first holiday in 38 years. Uh, It is the only federal holiday where slavery is a conspicuous theme of this holiday. At the same time, we are fighting to ensure voting rights because it is impacting Texas and many others. The Voting Rights Enhancement Act must be passed. And certainly issues dealing with equity, uh, dealing with uh, social justice and criminal justice, all of that must continue. No one is ignoring that. And the commission is not a day that I am not engaged in a discussion to ensure we do have H.R. 40, a commission to heal, to repair, to restore and to place slavery and its trajectory at the highest level of study in the federal government. Let me be very clear. We should be studying about Latinos, AAPI. We should be studying about Southeast Asians, Africans, African-Americans, Anglos. America is a mosaic and no one should be ignored. But certainly slavery has been something that has been long to be talked about. I believe Juneteenth, a commemoration of freedom. In our commemoration today, we lit candles, we prayed, and we thanked and recognized those who had lived who were born and died and never saw freedom, I think that is a legitimate, powerful reason to have Juneteenth, as well as its inspirational grounding on freedom and democracy, and that the work is not finished, it is still continuing. And we will go on and on and on until freedom comes in its totality. Use Juneteenth as a catapult to the challenges of the future and bring people from all backgrounds Americans. This is an American holiday, not a black holiday. It is about what happened in America. Tell the story and make it real. That's what Juneteenth is about. Congressman, che- Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee, thank you so very much. That is fantastic. Uh, we got to go to a quick break. Before the break, I wanted to mention that this weekend also marked a somber anniversary. Eight years ago, last weekend, nine black churchgoers were assassinated by white supremacists during a Bible study at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Among the fatalities was the senior pastor, state senator, and my personal friend, Clementa Pinckney. The first political campaign I ever ran was for Clem Pinckney back in 1997. He taught me about life, community, and faith, and his death wasn't just a personal tragedy, but a political one. When Republicans like Nikki Haley and Lindsey Graham tried to downplay the attack, I wrote, now is not the time to avoid politics. We must engage and attack white supremacy and all of its forms 
and be willing to call out the political leaders who dog whistle it into existence for electoral gain. Those words still ring true today. Our hearts go out to Clem's wife, Jennifer, and his children. Be right back on The Readout. Quote, to quote Johnny Carson, Joy is back with a really big show tomorrow with a special edition. You don't want to miss this of The Readout. As we approach the one-year anniversary of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, Joy will be joined in Dallas, Texas, by Vice President Kamala Harris for a discussion of reproductive rights in America, where they are and which ones we have left, and what a path to federal protections could look like, and why abortion rights will define the 2024 election and beyond. You do not want to miss this one. Set your DVRs. Get your family together. Get your kids who are going to college to watch this with you. So please join Reed for a one-on-one one-year post-row with a readout special tomorrow with Vice President Harris at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on MSNBC. That's tonight's readout. At KPMG, we make the difference. It's not just something we say. It's what we do. Our professionals believe in the value of collaboration and the power of technology. We work closely with clients to uncover insights that illuminate opportunity, develop bold solutions that innovate industries, and create better outcomes driven by data. Brighter insights, bolder solutions, better outcomes. It's how our people make the difference, driving growth and value for our clients. KPMG, make the difference.